0: What I thought was very interesting in the conversation about structures and how they prop up certain composers and certain pieces is the topic of trying to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. So if we have a, an educational system, which is based on primarily white male European composers and their pieces, then you might think that, well, if you add in pieces by uh, women or people of color or from other geographical areas, then you're being more inclusive. So instead of analyzing a piece by Mozart, you analyze a piece by anyone else than Mozart. Right, um, yeah. And the issue with that is, of course, what theoretical concept you're studying. and whether or not you're just cherry picking a composer based on how they match up with the great composers. So if you, for example, pick an excerpt from the music of Florence Price, because it matches up so well with your concept of good music as structured by Mozart or by Beethoven, then that is doing music and musical analysis a disservice because you're only choosing music that is good quote unquote but it's just a reflection of the the monolithic composers the composers that are just great are just geniuses or they just write masterpieces mm-hmm. rather than stretching out and trying to say what makes other musical styles valid what makes other musical styles worth studying yeah
1: i found i guess it was it was like a blog right or like a series of blogs, I found it interesting. It was because f- the way it was framed. I mean, it was he proposed that nothing can be really neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, something is either racist or anti-racist, and for me, uh, this gets to the idea: if you are talking about music theory, th- things or ideas or artwork is either good um, or bad, regardless of who created it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So. It's like the idea of separating the art from the artist, like, um, you know, there's like a, a meme or something, you know, if like, it's like, Oh, look at this nice painting. And then like below it's like this painting was painted by Hitler, you enjoy Nazism, you know, it's like, (laughs) (laughs) so, well, it's just a painting, you know, the painting doesn't hate Jews. It doesn't like persecute people. The music theory world in academia is very Eurocentric and is like 99%, you know, white males. But um, that in and of itself, like the theories um, that these people observed um, are just theories, you know, that like, I don't think that makes them racist or misogynistic, misogynistic like in and of themselves. Like, obviously things aren't created in a vacuum, the people's lives influenced what they did but i don't know like if you go to um study like if you go to a different culture and say well like all these you know people playing gamelan or balinese this culture is like a hundred percent you know Indi- people from indonesia does that make it like racist or misogynistic or i don't know music theory within academia is very eocentric but i don't think that necessarily means uh, it's racist just because it's Eurocentric. It may or may not be, but I don't think that's uh, a reason for it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I'm seeing, and I I agree that certain some pieces and some (coughs) theories may not be inherently racist in the sense that they don't have a explicit or even implicit racial agenda. I think for me, it's having gone through the entire process of getting my education, it is that it is Eurocentric to the detriment of other musical styles that you could study, but you just don't have the time because it's all built around the Western European tradition of concert music. These set of articles specifically. um, There was one person claiming that, or trying to argue, that all of these different musical systems were really created to make the Western European composers the center of the musical universe, and that everything is compared to them. Uh, by contrast, the, the person who created the most controversy was the, um, the professor, the music theory professor at University of North Texas, who I think was either on the board of the journal Shankarian Studies, or edited part of it, or just led it, or something. And his response, uh, if you read it, it came off as, very combative, very venomous. Um, He had a a page long footnote, almost page long footnote that was just lambasting rap music. (laughs) And and was just criticizing. Yeah, it was just a criticism (laughs) of the depiction, uh, especially of women uh, in rap music. And he was talking about um, that, oh, uh, Shanker can't be You know, racist because he was Jewish, and there are more, there's more anti Semitism in the black community than the white, in the white community in general. So, this person was very much not benefiting his own cause. Yeah. And that was definitely an example of first off, don't write anything when you're mad, especially (laughs) don't publish anything when you're mad, and definitely give whatever you're going to publish to somebody else to read so that they can say, no, don't publish this. (laughs) So, uh, and unfortunately, this whole issue got picked up by mainstream media, which anytime mainstream media picks up something that happens in academia, that's really bad, (laughs) because you have Mm -hmm. uh, on one side of it, them saying, here's this anachronistic system that's maintaining the status quo of having Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn at the center of the universe at the detriment of everything else. And then on the other hand, you have an established professor who's being um, accosted for speaking his views uh, because the liberal elite are trying to silence him and la-dee-da, blah, 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 (laughs) which is infuriating as it is because it's taking issues which are very imperative to musical education and destroying them, or at least siphoning out any sort of nuance of these arguments that they have. Whether or not they're nuanced is a matter of debate. But I will say that a big issue in academia is creating a system which is just reflective of specific composers in specific ways. Sonata form, for example, our concept of sonata form is from middle period beethoven what Mm -hmm. about late period beethoven well people like late period beethoven but they don't love late period beethoven unless they love late period beethoven other than his ninth symphony there aren't a lot of examples about his late string quartets just because they don't really fit that concept of the beethoven the beethoven sound so even within the various composers there is uh there is really discrimination against certain pieces that do not fit this world view of the genius composer who wrote in a certain way and established these rules of musical composition
1: yeah, yeah yeah that that gets into another topic that I find really interesting is that i i just think like um our music theory system that we have today is like really out of date, and like hmm. it's well, it's um, I feel like it could be revised, like it could be better, and like I guess you could say that about anything, I feel like it's almost like outlived its usefulness, like <laughs> you know, um there's a very big learning curve to to know how to use this system, and it's uh it's very much set up to work around tonal music and yeah. like key centers. And um, it just makes things overly complicated for um, like atonal music, for example, or jazz or like really most modern compositions or music, music, education, it's kind of locked into this old history, kind of like in a dogmatic way, Hmm. Um, you know, kind of like, oh, I had to learn this. So you do too, you know, you have to suffer through it just like I did. And I feel like that's kind of tied into like um it being very eurocentric as well. Um, it's just like the dogma of like putting these same composers on a pedestal, you know, um yeah. like Beethoven, mozart it's like it's like this old teacher dogma that never died, <laughs> you know, getting back to what you said before, I think them being just very eurocentric, focusing on like middle stage Beethoven or whatever, you know, corral writing. Why do we care that they didn't use to use parallel fifths or octaves, you know? There's value in like focusing in and really studying on any system. Uh, I feel like there's still a lot of things you can learn from like just studying the Eurocentric system, but the dogmas that go along with that are what I don't like about it, you know? Like how, you know, like disgust against rap music or popular music or something, you know, that like, <laughs> This guy. I didn't read that um, response that you were talking about, but that sounds pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. How do you feel about like their music education system? How we're we still learning this old system of like you know. Yeah
0: i I completely agree with you that i I think it is very, very centered on, on these sorts of trends that we've just done over and over again but I'll go even a step further and say that it's actually not Western centric in the fact that it's focused just on the music of Western Europe, but it's focused on the music of Western Europe from the late Baroque to middle. Yeah. To middle romanticism. Yeah. If you go before that tonality was not really a straight arrow. It was not going from uh, the, Gregorian chants all the way to uh, to tonality it was you know there was a lot of development during that during those many years in fact I have um, uh, Rameau's treatise on harmony which established many of the primary tenets in which we study in harmonic analysis in probably first semester music theory that wasn't written until 1617 so between 900 and 1600 was a development of music that was maybe approaching tonality but not codified until the turn of the 17th century and unfortunately we look at the music at that time in perspective of of our modern ears and that's incorrect uh for example one of the One of the tools in which is very common in jazz is modes. So we think of modes as built off of the major scale. Because the major scale is the center of our tonal universe. The major scale is where you get the minor scale and all the major alterations are based on the major scale. But that's not how they viewed music in pre-tonal music. They viewed scales bore along the lines of gestures, where if you used a certain collection of notes, they would be organized in a certain way, rather than just from one note on the keyboard to another note on the keyboard. It didn't really work like that. And in terms of like, why don't the, um, why don't the late Baroque com- uh, classical composers use parallel fifths? Well, back in the day, they did. They would just take the melodic line and layer a perfect fifth on top. So they would do parallel fifths all the time or parallel fourths. And one of the things you realize is that, well, a lot of them were following the overtone series and just, you know, adding because the overtone series goes the octave, then the fifth, then a fourth, then a major third, then a minor third that's like the progression of harmony. (laughs) You just, you add the perfect fifth, then you add the perfect fourth, and then you get finally to the major third. So not only do we look at other global musical styles from different cultures in the realm of this very narrow definition of music between late Baroque and middle Romantic, we also view the music before that in the same lens. And that is something that, is solidified in in our musical education what do you begin with in theory class you begin with Bach chorales (laughs) that's the start of music in in our musical theory we don't start with counterpoint at least I didn't start with counterpoint Mm -hmm. but that's where you start with you know melody the notes and then you go to counterpoint and then you go to harmony which you think but no when I study it it went here are the notes here are the rhythms, and here are the chords. Now, so you skip 700 years of musical development to go from here's a note to here's a chord. So here's the beginning of Western to- um, Western notation. All sudden, to here's how Bach wrote chords. <laughs> yeah. So yes, that's what I think about our musical education. It's that it's solidifying these incorrect ways in which to think about not only music of different cultures, but music of our own linear trajectory that just was not built on the same foundations.
1: Yeah, another thing that I really feel like uh, is lacking is that we just start with music, uh, like, at least in my, like, um, you know, standard music school theory education there was like no talk or anything about sound or like Mm -hmm. acoustics or like the overtone series like I didn't learn any of that until like afterwards and I feel like that's it's it's so useful it's like because it really um, is the foundation for like everything in, Mm -hmm. in music and without that it's like they're presenting like um, tuning is just it's solved, you know. <laughs> it's it's not an issue anymore because we solved it and it's just something we don't have to teach anymore, which it's like it's just so wrong, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because everything makes so much more sense if you have an understanding of the overtone series and acoustics, um, even just like a basic understanding of it. Um, and I don't know why most schools don't teach like even a basic introduction to it.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm surprised at that too. Um, and in fact it was, uh, researching Edgar Varese, where Varese took the concepts of music in which we learn and really he broke them down even further to their more fundamental concepts. So instead of pitch, which is just A, B, C, D, you have frequency. So the frequency response. If you have um dynamics, then he turned that into intensity. And if you have um if you have like sound quality, then that gets extrapolated to timbre. Um let's see it's Oh, and then note length, you know, quarter note, half note, eighth note, that's duration. So these concepts, which are more in tune with acoustics, more ambiguous terms, like, or actually more concrete terms, like duration, intensity, frequency, Mm -hmm. timbre, and then the last one was space. So space, I guess, would be more like silence, which would be rest, but it's more concrete in the sense that it's more of an oral phenomenon rather than a musical phenomenon. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, this is one of the other topsy-turvy ways in which they view uh, musical education in this world is that they think that in our music classes, music begins with Bach and then ends at the 20th century, and then anything after that mm-hmm. is advanced. <laughs> so, yeah. if you want to take classes on uh, sound design or just acoustics in general, that's like a, a graduate level class. That's that's way out there, man. You just mm-hmm. it, it's so it's so new because it was only done a hundred years ago. So, <laughs> another toughy turvy way in which education doesn't structure musical education in a very intuitive way yeah
1: yeah um well maybe we could uh kind of shift i think this might lead into like um i don't know like what was the term for like polystylism or something oh yeah i think um many examples of that throughout throughout history and i've noticed it's i don't know that it's becoming popular or just i've just noticed maybe i've just noticed like more artists doing it but um you know there's plenty of examples of like that happening in the past with like charles ives and like mm-hmm. you know mozart with his like turk turkish you know what was it march or waltz or whatever um yeah the turkish march yeah um i find that interesting maybe it's it's more accessible now because of the internet and like it's so easy for people to like meet up and exchange ideas. Um, mm. I don't know.
0: Do you have thoughts about that? <laughs> yeah, I actually agree in that it is accessible uh, and I think it's been more accessible over the course of the 20th century with the various uh, communication apparatuses at our disposal. We've had telephones, we've had radio, We've had television. We've had film. We've had all these ways in which to communicate ideas across long distances almost instantaneously. Even going back to the creation of the printing press, that just exploded musical information because you could print you could print uh, music and treatises much cheaper and that meant that you could print a more diverse spread of music cheaper. Now, I can go back to uh, Bach and and show how he integrated different styles of music into his music, just based on the fact that he had such a huge collection of music at his disposal. Mm -hmm. He just had so many printed scores that he scoured over that he had so many different influences. But I think the difference nowadays is not only did we have access to the internet, um and sound recordings but there's more of a culture of musical cross-pollination you think about when you turn on the television every commercial has music and every tv show has music and it's all completely different from each other so if you Mm. hear a reggae tune and then all of a sudden you flip to a latin jazz tune or a gypsy jazz tune and then you flip to a heavy metal track That seems pretty natural now, just because we're so used to so many different musical styles happening one after the other. So I think it's pretty natural nowadays to have a musical cross-pollination be not only so prevalent, but so accepted as valid musical expression, because that's the world that we live in.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I, I'm into mm-hmm. it <laughs> um, This is Maybe kind of out there, but do you think there'll ever be like a time where like there's just like one giant homogenous like <laughs> Music organism and it's like all one like there's no distinct like oh, that's you know Latin jazz or that's heavy metal, you know, it'll all just be
0: You know, I have thought of that and I think they're reaching the point where we are going to transcend genre and just go to personal identity. Mm-hmm. That we're just going to not try and define who or what styles Flying Lotus is, um, is incorporating just saying, oh, that's Flying Lotus or, oh, that's the Beatles or, oh, that's Tosin Abasi." Um, and I think that's going to be to the point where instead of saying, oh, he has a very jazz influence, he has a very uh, Latin influence, like, oh, yeah, I hear a lot of Tosin Abasi in his music. Or, yeah, I hear a lot of Charles Eyes in your music. That's what I do when I listen yeah, to a piece yeah. by another person. I'm like, you know, I heard a lot of Scriabin in that piece. You know, I heard a lot of Arvo Pärt in that piece. Just because even though I could define what it is makes Eyes and even just saying, Oh, uh, that's very modern. What does modern mean? I, yeah. you know, modern can mean so many different things. So I think it's more accurate, at least in this time, to focus more on the identity of the person in which you may be um, being rather than the musical style, in which could be so many different things.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think people already do that. Like, Mm-hmm. I you said you do that. I mean, I'll do that sometimes, but um it's almost it it's like similar. It's it's not the same thing cuz like genres tend to try and like lump a group mm-hmm. of artists, you know. Um you know, with metal, for example, there's like so many you have the genre metal and then there's so many sub genres and then sub-subgenres that it gets, you know, kind of ridiculous. Um yeah. so it, it like almost gets loss you know it's like oh we're not we're you know, progressive vegetarian vegan grind corpse you know acid rock it's like (laughs) what does that even mean you know (laughs) um in a way like just saying an artist name would be less confusing um or not you know i don't know some artists have very wide um very diverse like artistic interests you know like um i don't know Frank Zappa or something, for mm-hmm. example, did like all kinds of different stuff, you know. But he still has like a certain style, I would say, that
0: you could yeah. kind of recognize. Uh, specifically for metal, do you think that part of the definition in which people will define their sound or their band is actually based on the perception of what other musical styles have regarding their their authenticity? Or their sense of musical purity, like if somebody calls you um, metalcore, you're like, ah, no! What are you talking about? That stuff's horrible. No, we are not (laughs) metalcore. (laughs) You know, we just the um, the way in which they define themselves is more like how they define their own musical purity, I guess, their own purity of intent. In a sense, I mean, I think. It's
1: uh, it's very much like a culture, and like people will have will self-identify with that, you know. So I think that's how you get things like that, where like I always think of like black metal as like you know the purists, like mm. like we listening to nothing but black metal, you know. <laughs> um, but because that's because they're identifying with the culture of black metal, mm. um, you know uh being dark and stoic and wearing black leather and like you know i don't know anarchism like in a sense
0: um so those are those are like the peripheral elements of the style as well, so you know you have the musical style, which black metal is like driving drums, shrieking vocals, more of like an atmospheric dark ethereal type vibe to it, but there's also the cosmetic aspects do they wear some type of gothic makeup do they wear yeah, black yeah. clothing um, whereas if you have something like uh, uh, shoegaze I mean shoegaze is probably just something that people will be like no because it's like guys with you know $200 sneakers who are stepping on 20 yeah, pedals yeah. all at once yeah
1: yeah absolutely I don't know if I exactly answered
0: your question but <laughs> Well, yeah. it, it's funny because I was thinking about genre in terms of how people identify themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, metal gets so pedantic, it's just insufferable yeah. to even think about how many acronyms they go through just to try and define what they are blackened grindcore, death gaze, uh, anime music, you know, something like that. But I usually think of music and musical genre not. As what they are but where they came from. So if you have musical styles where somebody came from a jazz background then they will have sensibilities in which are inherent in jazz even if the musical style doesn't really call to them as jazz. Uh, Even though Tosin Abasi, for example, he did study jazz and his music is very jazz influenced it's not typical jazz and in fact it, it is very much progressive metal uh so but it's that his lineage and that the trajectory of his music went through jazz and integrated parts of it into his own modern musical style
1: yeah yeah absolutely you know i think there's like certain uh, characteristics of I think it's like a culture thing you know like people like a jazz community will be like um i don't know like a cool cat or something it's kind (laughs) of like the imagery i get you know people that are laid back you know and like i don't know in a CD jazz club you know and then like metal has this kind of like um rugged anarchism you know like in a way you know um And, like, classical music has this persona of, like, you know, people wearing suit and ties and being all uptight and, you know, like, you know, giving you dirty looks if you make a noise during, like, the concert or something, you know? Um, So, yeah, I think that that's definitely a thing, you know? (laughs) So,
0: in terms of polystylism, one of the things I've had a hard time with is trying to determine the difference between... Somebody consciously being stylistic versus somebody uh, versus somebody just integrating different elements of music without really being conscious of it. Because we as musicians are always learning, hopefully, and we're always taking different pieces of different styles and different genres and composers and integrating them into our own music. But where's the line between somebody who is learning and is integrating elements of different styles versus somebody who you'd consider to be polystylistic in their style of music? I
1: don't think there's a hard line. It's kind of like things that could hover in that area. But I think it would maybe it has to do with intent. You know, like mm-hmm. if someone's like, I'm going to make this song, you know, I'm going to do this is gonna this is gonna be the jazz section this is gonna be the metal section this is gonna be the like something john zorn would do you know where like Mm. every 10 seconds like boop 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 it's (laughs) like you're flipping channels on a, a radio or something yeah um whereas if that's happening more intuitively because you listen to a lot of different styles of music that might just absorb into like what you're doing where like um I don't know. You might make a rhythm that has like, like kind of a ska feel to it, but it's not as like blatantly obvious or something. Mm. I think that could be an indicator of what you're talking about, where it's like what's what you would label polystylism is just like something that occurs
0: naturally. Mm. I definitely agree that I think it's a lot in the execution. Like John Zorn, who has different sections where they just shift back and forth. Uh one other piece I was thinking about <clears throat> was The Songs of Innocence and of Experience, which is um a a full piece by William Bolcom, based on the poetry of William Blake. I don't know if you've heard that um piece before. No. So what's very interesting about this piece is that it's huge. It's like two and a half hours long, multi-movement. Each movement is about, not very long, like two to five minutes per movement. And each movement is different in both context or musical context and instrumentation as well as musical style. So it begins in a very modernist 20th century style and then it moves to a folk tune Um, and then it moves to eventually a country tune with a country singer and a violin um, melody. And then at the end of the entire piece is a reggae. So it, it is consciously taking these styles of music and juxtaposing them one against the other. But I think it's also doing so in a way where it's maintaining a concept of that musical style that it maintains, it doesn't alter. There is some overlap, but there's not a lot to think that there's an, a cross pollination happening. It's just bam, here's a style, bam, here's a style, bam, here's a style. And I think that is very much a polystylistic intent because it's not only utilizing multiple different styles, but it's placing them in a way where they are uniquely identifiable and completely almost untouched in a way. Interesting,
1: yeah, I'm not familiar with that that piece. Is there like an overall narrative that
0: it like it fits into or is it? Well, the the narrative is the set of poems by William Blake. so okay. each, yeah, each one is adapting the poem for voice, be it for single voice or choir, uh, children's choir, full choir. Um, and each one utilizes different musical styles to accompany it. So that is the over, overarching theme of the entire uh, series. But in terms of just musical styles, it, it's just all over the place, and it, it better be because it took them twenty-five years to write this piece. Wow! <laughs> it, just, it took forever, <laughs> you know, and it's it's huge, and it um, it's just gargantuan in, in scope and style. Um, so yeah.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll have to check that out. I haven't, um, not familiar with that one. It's almost like process music, right? Like you're he's mm. the process of like, I'm gonna use this, all these different styles in this one big piece. Um, which I I find that topic kind of interesting. It's like process, because like me as a composer, you know, like I w- want to try. And like, how can I be new? How can I do something I haven't done before? And like the way for me, my thought process to get around that is like, well, if I just rely on like what's intuitive to me, I'm just going to keep repeating things. So if I like mm. put this new process, maybe I'll come up with something new. Um, but I also, I think they can be like an interesting thing to do. But I also like can recognize that in other pieces of music that do that. I don't like the outcome of what happened. You know, have you worked with processes like in writing music or like what do you have an opinion on process
0: music or? Yes. I, well, one of the contexts I had to study process music in was minimalism. So the process music of Steve Reich, for example, was taking that concept of phasing, taking two parallel melodies and having them slowly move out of sync with one another, Creating unique and um, unique and un, unforeseeable rhythms, uh, which he d- adapted into his drumming, and then eventually music for eighteen musicians. That sort of process um, is more like a mechanical process. In terms of myself and like a creative process, how do I write music that's new and interesting to me and and expands boundaries? I think that's mainly about creating boundaries and working within a contained box of possibilities. Because when you give yourself a box to work into, then you need to creatively do as many different things as you can in order to maximize what ideas you have eliminated yourself to. Which seems counterintuitive to creativity because you want it to be unbridled. You want it to be completely free and have so many possibilities in front of you but my god we have 88 keys on the keyboard (laughs) if if you didn't know what the second key was based on something then you'd have 88 choices then you know 88 choices squared just based on one to the other Mm -hmm. and that's the reason why we have uh serialism i mean we emancipated the the notes from the tonal structure but we had to figure out what note came after what note. <laughs> what note comes after C? Well, yeah. let's create a number system, and then what? I don't. I don't think that's entirely
1: why we have. I mean, maybe I'm just missing the point of what you're trying to to say. But like, I, like I think the point of like um, like twelve tone is an example to get away from tonal music, not necessarily because they didn't know what to write. You know?
0: Right. Oh no, I definitely that um that going away from the structures of tonal music was meant to unlock the possibilities of atonal music but in order to to ground them in some sort of musical process you have the creation of the 12 tone row which tells you yeah one note goes to this note how do i make that interesting or how do i make that transition or this organization knows musical and that's the creativity of the different composers that makes Webern so much different from uh, Schoenberg and so much different later from uh, Pierre Boulez yeah
1: yeah you know because they're like what new process can we use to escape or do something new you know in that case it was getting out of tonal music Um, I think some of it is really interesting and cool and some of it I think maybe um, I'm talking about 12 tone music, some of it like Mm -hmm. really just um, maybe relies too much on the process and not on making it musical. Hmm. If that makes sense, you know? There was this uh, story I heard from uh, the guitarist, uh, Stuart Fox, he's telling me about, I think it was, um, I wish I could remember the the two composers, but I think it was, I don't want to say the name and be wrong, but, um, so there's, there's like two, um, I'll, I'll have to look it up later, but two, like 12 tone, uh, two composers that use 12 tone, uh, that method to compose music. Mm-hmm. And he was saying how he noticed one of them was a lot more musical and he talked to the composer about it and he was telling like, Oh, this other, uh, he was saying, I just use the rows that I think sound cool. Like, this other guy he's relentless he uses all the rows and his like um i guess his justification was that there's a beauty in that in and of itself regardless of how the music sounds hmm. um you know it's beautiful because it has all these like uh like a geometric painting or something because of all the shapes and how it's constructed rather than um its realization like how it sounds hmm. which is what I don't want to fall into. You know,
0: I always (laughs) want to write music to like, I don't know. Yeah. um, You know, I've definitely seen the differences between certain composers who write atonal music, whether it's uh, formatted within strict serialism or not. Uh, Of course, I have sitting right beside me, the score to Bozzec, which is grounded in atonality and I believe utilizes some 12 tone techniques, but is not strictly 12 tone music. So it has the flexibility of going in and out of a tonality in a way which is not restricted by it. Now, some pieces are very beautiful, like um, the piano pieces of Schoenberg, I think are are wonderful. And then the string pieces of Vabern, I think are wonderful in their own right. Mm-hmm. Um I, I'm not really a huge fan of Boulez in terms of his absolute serialism. Um I like him more as a as a conductor. I, I don't know about <laughs> you, but in terms of um of my favorite uh recordings of symphonies of Mahler, you know, I always go to Boulez uh recordings. But that sort of total serialism where everything is different from note to note dynamics attack Mm. uh, as well as the note itself is just creating too many parameters on a piece of music. It really makes it so that you cannot write anything beyond that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It almost like uh, approaches noise Mm -hmm. at that point, which, you know, noise is like another genre of like, (laughs) <laughs> music so <laughs> yeah i don't know um have you experimented or like do you have an opinion on
0: noise music or is that something you're familiar with i haven't really dabbled into noise music i mean i've dabbled into ambient music yeah. so um those probably have similarities just in terms of using what found sounds and um what do you think
1: it's kind of like on the the realm of like the spectral kind of composers hmm. they were like not necessarily they're writing music with like sounds rather than tones and like tonal you know so it's it's kind of like that um where you can i find it interesting um you have to use different uh you can't rely on like melody and pitch so it uses things like um rhythm or um
0: yeah. dyna- dynamics i guess um I will say that I am very much grounded in tonal music as a composer. And I find myself as not just a primarily tonal composer, but more of a storyteller. So the way in which I try and tell stories in my music is utilizing pretty typical ways in which you try and tell a story. You have themes, those themes have permutations and, and mutations and you build certain uh, similarities and certain relationships over the course of your music. And those are supposed to have significance within the overarching story. And I think uh, for me, anything that goes beyond that is still going to be in relation to that. Um, So even if I use atonality in my music, atonal um, processes, it is gonna be grounded in tonal music. So if there's an atonal aspect, then it has to be a deviation from tonality, like there's a deviation in the story. Um, that is how I naturally ground my musical style in writing my own original music, is that whatever it is, the story is, is what the music is going to be.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's cool. Well, do you think you can objectively tell a story with music without program notes?
0: Mm. Not one that everyone is going to understand. Mm. So um, one of the fields of study nowadays, uh, which is fairly recent, is called semiotics or semiotics, which is the study of musical symbolism. And this is delving into the idea that certain musical gestures or occurrences have extra musical meaning. For example, probably the most famous is uh, the Death March. If it goes "bum, bum, bum," then that is uh, synonymous with a death March, which is funny because that is... The gesture that is used in Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, where you have in the, uh, I believe, in the upper part, you have that same bum bum, and that's something that is gesturally a, de- a death march. Uh, and there are other musical, um, musical symbols, uh, for example, going back to Beethoven, is Beethoven's uh, his fifth symphony has the bum 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 bum. So that short, 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 long musical gesture, which is like knocking on Death's door. And that's the same mm-hmm. musical gesture that Mahler uses in the beginning of his fifth symphony, but instead of the the drop down, it's just the same note bum 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 bum. So I think that if you have an awareness of musical symbols that are across the uh, scope of Western concert music—you can definitely tell a story, but everyone else has to have a concept of those musical symbols. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, very much
1: related to culture. Um, mm-hmm. Do you know where that um that one you mentioned, like the death? Uh, do you know where that comes from?
0: Well, I definitely know that the um, the death march—the typical one—is like Chopin's death march. Like the origins of that particular that particular gesture, I'm not really sure of other than the the Chopin one, which is very clear.
1: I would imagine it, would, it might come from like a funeral drum or like mm. some sort of procession, you know, because like that was a thing, you know, when they have the drum in like, uh, you know, military settings and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. And definitely other, other gestures such as, hunting gestures, which would be from hunting horns, the typical gestures yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you find in the horns of the day. Um, those all would definitely have a real world context. Of course nowadays in American uh, culture, at least American military culture, we have the cornet calls, the the symbols to get up in the morning, go to bed at night, mm-hmm. get your mail Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that I've used in his musical works. Um, and I think that is also uh, an extension of semiotics as well. Yeah.
1: That's the term for that uh, semiotics, what you call.
0: Yeah. The musical gestures and occurrences that have extra musical significance. Mm.
1: Yeah. The oldest one that I'm kind of like aware of would be like uh references in like the Bible to like, you know, the walls of Jericho coming down with like the horns playing or mm. kind of like a, a judgment day kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I think, um, and I'm not sure if it's like just, um, the fact of a mutual gesture, which had some sort of, uh, worldly significance versus like text painting or, uh, musical elaboration, like, uh, if. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I'll have to look up on that. Um,
1: yeah, it's definitely I mean, I find it very interesting that whole, uh, I guess, subject of like, music ideas having other meanings. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I brought up that question to you originally, because I, I talked to someone, this was a professor at uh, CalArts, he, um, we we're talking about film music, and he I kind of more or less asked him the same question and he, he uh, had the opinion or he said that you could objectively tell the story um, of the music, you know, like objectively telling it regardless of like what culture you're in or like, you know, where you grew up from, which I, I don't think is necessarily the case because I think whatever culture you're in is largely going to influence like what you think of uh the music in a sense i mean maybe that's not as much of a thing anymore because
0: of i don't know polystylism and like the internet but Mm -hmm. Uh, you know it's funny i was um this reminded me of a video i was watching which was comparing the different uh book covers of the lord of the rings and how if you look at the Lord of the Rings publication over the course of many years, the artistic style may be slightly different, but you can just tell a Lord of the Rings cover. It just has a characteristic style to it that is universal over the course of the many different versions of the Lord of the Rings um, original book series. And I think that if you if you had a story which had precedent. And you used musical styles which had precedent in storytelling then you could objectively tell a story from beginning to end but you'd have to have precedent for it i mean you you'd have to watch like the entire game of thrones series to then just like have a game of thrones suite it's just like telling a story but through music that may be possible you know (laughs) just the context is there Uh, but i think the amount of preliminary information you'd have to have about that particular story and how these musical gestures represent these certain um, people or events or actions. That is so vast and so specific that you could only do that through a vast amount of preliminary information.
1: Yeah. There's definitely some things that are like objective within music, but um, I don't know. I haven't done studies on it it's just (laughs) it's just my uh my bias I guess
0: well objectively music is sound I guess I think that's pretty objective I think that and I guess music is sound and sound is vibration so music is a vibe
1: yeah there's things about nature though like um like everyone has a heartbeat and like Mm. you could like kind of imitate that with a drum, you know. Um, So I'm kind of imagining that could be like possibly objectively, you could play like a heartbeat on a drum to like simulate a heartbeat. That could be objective. uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Um, And of course, the the question would extrapolate uh, to is it music? Um, Which of course that question has very frequently been used to dismiss certain styles of music to say that, "Oh, that's not music because it doesn't have a, b C x, y, z mm-hmm. which is basically the beginning of our entire conversation. What is music, and how do we determine what makes it good um, yeah. well, Shanker says this, and right, yeah, so. So yes, that that is something to say what is definable and what is objectively um, declarable. You can objectively declare that there's sound because it's a physical phenomenon. But to determine what it is makes music creates an intrinsic framework in which you may have that disqualifies Things that could be music. Noise music is something that I bet a lot of people would say, no, that's not music. That's just sound. That's mm-hmm. just uh, cacophony of sound. And of course, you could have um, styles of music that have no pitch, like African percussion, and say, well, that's that's not music. It isn't. You can't sing it. Um, well, you can't sing it that guy can sing it just fine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Yeah. So, yeah. um, What do you think about that? Yeah, this
1: kind of reminds me of a a few different lectures. Um, One of them being, um, I'm thinking of two different things, but I'm going to just start with one. I heard, I remember like the comparison, like, uh, you know, if, if you're listening to like Beethoven on the radio or something, you know, and like someone else, is like on a phone or something have an important phone call you're like hey shut off that noise you know it's like to them in that moment beethoven is just noise you know because it's an undesired sound so it's like thinking of it in that way it's like um noise is just like a sound you don't want to hear yeah and music could be just noise if you don't want to hear it or if it's like intrusive again i think it's it's tied to culture very much and people have an expectation of what they think music is, which um, in a concert setting, it might be like Mozart or might be club music, but like, yeah, someone sits down at a piano, you have kind of an expectation um, Mm -hmm. that they're gonna play maybe something classical sounding like Beethoven or Bach or whatever. But if they like open up the piano, and start playing the inside of the, the, the piano strings and screaming into the piano, you know, you'd be like, what is this? This isn't music, you know, because you have the expectation that they're going to sit on the bench and play. But I think both of those would be music. Um, maybe one of them is like harder to understand because it's not as common. Um, yeah, there was, a the composer, he teaches at like Stanford, I think. Um, um, but he did like I think there was like a TED talk and like he kept going back to like, is it music? And, you know, he had like various examples of like um an orchestra with like a florist, you know, and like a yeah. typewriter and are are you familiar with that? that yeah, music? I'm trying to remember
0: his name. Um I, I think it was something Applebottom or something. Yeah. Like.
1: Uh um,
0: Mark Applebaum. Yeah.
1: Like a, yeah <laughs> yeah is it music and then you kind of got down to like you know is it interesting you know it doesn't matter if it's it can be like framed historically as like music
0: yeah so one of the examples i was thinking of uh was a artist by the name of nick cave um mm. not the musician nick cave uh so this artist is somebody who works in costume kind of okay Uh, he, he creates what are called sound suits and what they are are collections of different materials that are pieced together into a really bulky and um ostentatious piece of clothing that is then activated quote unquote with music so um a piece of musical sound And then the person wearing the costume will move to the music, thereby activating the sound through the interaction of different materials on the costume itself. So in a way, Nick Cave doesn't put a single note down on paper and he doesn't really even do the sound himself. He's making a costume in which somebody else creates the sound themselves through music that's playing. So it's a, combination of dance and costume and fashion and it asked to me is he a composer because he's creating he's creating the circumstances in which to have sound art in which to have mm-hmm. music um, so if if I were to say well he's an architect of sound because he's creating the mechanisms in which sound is made, then I would say, yeah, he's a composer. Uh, But in terms of asking, is he making music or is the music the point, is the sound the significant aspect to it, that's when it gets kind of (laughs) muddied because it's very hard for me as a composer to have studied music for nine and a half years (laughs) And then to relinquish the title to somebody who never studied music before that, of course, yeah. I bet you can probably think the same thing that if, you know, somebody, um, studied painting their entire life and then one person, mm. you know, uh, kicked over a paint can and spilled it onto, a, a parchment was like, that person's an artist. No. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that, that was a very tricky situation for me is to ask is this person a composer because they make music uh through sound they create the parameters in which to create sound or are they not a composer because they're not creating sound in a in a way in which they can control or i just i'm a composer and they're not there we go
1: yeah i definitely understand that feeling you know on one hand you're a dedicated artist and you've spent your whole life into the pursuit of your craft and then here's this layman that like does something by accident kicks over a paint can and like oh you know it's like um it's like oh we are just throwing out these titles willy-nilly like everyone's a composer you know If you hum a tune, you're a composer, you know. (laughs) Um, Which I think um, a lot of the uh, the dogma and kind of like the academic world kind of stems from that, like initial like reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think it's a valid thing to feel, but I don't know. You know, maybe (laughs) maybe the guy that kicked over a paint can is an artist. (laughs) <laughs> but in a person, loose yeah
0: but the per, yeah in a loose sense but the person right who taped a banana to the wall and called it art no that's that's not artist. <laughs> <laughs> that's a provocateur <laughs> how dare you
1: <laughs> no. it was a plantain <laughs> yeah yeah no i feel like art and like high art definitely is like the most like hilarious example of that you know where like I don't know a toilet or like a stall on the wall or just like any example you could think of Um, there's probably other factors involved within like talking about high art in the art world but um, Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting Um, I would say in a loose sense I would I would say they're a composer I guess there's like two different connotations of it yeah yeah, that, that's interesting. I haven't heard of that. It's like a, it's almost kind of like performance art, right? If you have a, a suit that makes sound when you move in it. Um.
0: Definitely. And it's it's very interesting, not just because um, the idea is interesting, but the context behind it is interesting. Um, Nick Cave is both um, a black man and a gay black man. Um, and the significance of creating this suit is that It is a piece of clothing that obscures all sensations or all notions of gender, of race, of um, orientation, of ethnicity, and just basically masks every sense of identity other than your movement. Hmm. How? (laughs) Oh, well, if you look at them, they're like completely covering your body and your face. So that usually all, all that you see are the person's feet, maybe. Oh, maybe okay. those are covered. Maybe that mostly the face is totally covered. The hands are covered. um So yeah. Okay, that that's not what I was imagining. but uh, <laughs>
1: Maybe maybe you just need to see it. But uh, sure. I was imagining like a ridiculous like eighties workout video kind of thing with like sandpaper like taped to it and like oh. bells and like <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, some of them are, are not only elaborate, but some of them are so bulky that people can't actually wear them. So they're just hanging in a museum somewhere, which also is significant because if it's hanging in a museum, doesn't that make it sculpture? Because if it's on some bun, then it's fashion. But if it's on like a stand and nobody's wearing it and it's just not moving, then I guess it's not fashion anymore. It's like sculpture. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a sense, like, does it really matter what label we put on it? You know, I guess that's true. Unless you know, you're like, oh, he can't be a composer because composers don't make sculptures, (laughs) composers don't do fashion. Yeah.